Man, it's good to see everybody. It is a, it's a bit of a crazy day, um, just to think in the grand scheme of things and the life and history of, of this church family. Um, like a little over four years ago, on like a 17-degree morning, we had our first worship service here, um, and we had gone from Spill the Beans, which Abram and, and Heather Curtis were so gracious to let us use for a number of years, and I remember thinking, like, even when we explored this possibility, like, how are we going to pay for this? You know, like, how is that going to happen? Like, how are we going to pay for it? How are we going to go from, like, semi-mobile to fully mobile? You know, all of these things. And four years later, like, man, it's been good. It's been really good. And But one thing that we made, a, made very clear on that first day is, like, you know, this is one of the coolest spaces in downtown. Like, it is. Like, it's, a, it's an amazing space. And, and we made it clear, like, even on that day that... Um, we wanted to make sure that we understood that, like, we are not defined by a building. We're not defined by bricks or wood or stone or any of those things, no matter how beautiful or amazing they are. Like, that's not who we are. And, um, and one of the charges on that day and challenges was, like, we can't lose sight of the fact that we are flesh and blood. We are family gathered together under one God through one Savior and one Holy Spirit that indwells us. And, uh, man, I can, I can proudly say that, that we have not lost sight of that. Um, that's been good. And uh, I, I believe that you know, even while this is just a building, um, man, it's been more than that, too. Like, it's been a place for us to grow. It's been a place for us to thrive. It's been a place for us to invest in our city. It's been a place for us to, to meet some amazing staff people that have taken care of us and, and allowed us to serve them from time to time while they served us. And so it's been, it's been really good. And so I won't get verklempt, but I probably will. Probably will. Um, we get to do it again next week. And, and here's the point. Um, it's going to be costly. It, it's going to require effort. But at the end of the day, it's entirely necessary. Not so that origins may maintain or continue, but so that the kingdom of God can grow here in this city. And even if origins ceases to exist and the kingdom of God grows as a result of what he's done in us, we're going to be okay with that. Um, that's, that's the end of the day for us. Like that, that is why we're here, to see the kingdom of God grow, thrive, and flourish in this city. Um, with or without us, but as a result of the call of God. So I hope you're on board with us. I hope you'll go. Um, and, you know, we haven't talked a whole lot about the finances, but to be honest, we'll probably need a little more. And so if, if you're a part of this family and you give, like, regularly, sacrificially, generously, and joyfully, um, there may come a day where we, we kind of tap and we say, we need you to tap in just a little bit more because we need to do more. Uh, we will never spend so much to the point that it inhibits our ability to serve this city, love this city, take care of our people. Um, and so that's a, that's a goal for us. But at the same time, there's, there's more that God's called us to do. And it may require a few more cents to be dropped. And so uh, when that time comes, I would love for you guys to pray about it and consider it. But God's been gracious, and, uh, man, we're excited. So next week, we'll be right next door, right across the tracks, 930. Actually be there at 9 o'clock, 9 o'clock for breakfast, eat with us. And every Sunday after that, I know, like, I get it, 95% uh, of our people, it's okay, it's not a dirty word, you're millennials, and that's all right, I get it. I missed it by about six months, and I'm, I'm really proud of that. But either way, like, I know that 9.30 is early, but if you got here at 9.10 or there at 9.10, you'd actually get to hang out with people and talk to people that you've never met before, and, and that's, that's really good. That's, that's a, a great thing. So I'm just saying, hey, maybe the Spirit is convicting you to set your alarm 30 minutes earlier, which would be great. So anyway, um, yeah, we're excited, and at the same time, we will uh, forever be grateful for a space that we couldn't afford, and manpower we didn't have, and, and vision that we didn't understand, and that God gave us all those things uh, to meet in a place where we didn't have to decorate a bit, 
Um, beautiful. I love bricks, man. I love bricks, and yeah, it's great. So anyway, uh, yeah, be with us next week. Today we're back in the series in Mark, um, and like this is one of the challenges when, when you teach through an entire book, uh, and you just kind of decide on the outset that you're going to teach through every single verse in that book, uh, there is guaranteed to come like some sticky passages, and today is one of those. Like today, to be honest, since we started this, there's, there's been two of them that I've just been looking at, and I'm like, man, um, I'm excited to teach that, but I'm also a bit, a, a bit nervous, and today is one of those, and especially like the timing of all of this, like we're leaving a space, going to a new space, and today we get to talk about like the death of John the Baptist. He was, he was killed, beheaded um, for following God, and so like that's not saying that's what's happening with us, so let's go ahead and remove all the metaphors. It's just where we are, and so we're going to teach through it, and, and hopefully God's going to use that just to kind of continue to shape and um, and bring us closer to him. So let me pray, and we'll jump right in. God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you, God, that uh, you have allowed us to grow and thrive. Um, God, you have allowed us to see new life uh, in the form of salvation. You've allowed us to see people come back to God. You've allowed us to see people declaring their faith in God through baptism and babies uh, being dedicated by their families to say that they're going to raise them to fear and know the Lord. Uh, you've allowed us to see people grow in their maturity in Jesus uh, you've allowed us to see so much uh, while in this space that is not ours. Um, and in every sense of the word, it's just on loan, uh, ultimately from you for your purpose and your glory. Uh, and God, you've allowed, it, allowed us to see it and be a part of it. God, we thank you for that. Uh, today, as we look at your word, we thank you that uh, it is trustworthy, um, that it is more than valuable, um, and that it is able to, um, to, to be used to begin faith in us or continue faith in us. And I pray we look at it well. Do not add to or take anything away, and it brings you glory. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen. So we're in Mark chapter 6, uh, starting in verse 14. Last week, uh, we talked about Jesus sending out the disciples two by two and kind of uh, furthering that process of discipleship, of like replicating himself in people, giving them responsibility from his authority to go out and do. And so we talked about this idea that it was a vital part of discipleship, that very often we get right up to that precipice and we just stop because we forget to be sent out or go out. And, and Mark has this literary technique of, of sandwiching that he's so good at, uh, and it, it will drive you crazy because you're, you're just now getting into that mode of reading about this topic because last week marks the shift from uh, learning about who Jesus was and calling the disciples to actually releasing the disciples in Jesus' name, and then we have this passage, like right in the middle. And it is, like it's a doozy. Um, and so that's, that's one thing that Mark did when he, uh, when he wrote down his gospel uh, to just, man, I think just to mess with us a little bit. Not really, but it does. And so we're going to read it today, and we're going to look through. Um, to give you a little bit of information about John the Baptist, who we're going to talk about, John the Baptist was the first in many regards. Like, he was the first in over, uh, around 500 years to be a prophet of God. So there was a huge silence between the end of the Old Testament, the beginning of the New Testament, in which there were no prophets. Like, God was speaking to individuals, dealing with individuals, but there was no prophet, a mouthpiece of God, until John the Baptist enters the scene, and he does it in dramatic fashion. Like, he's a wild man in every sense of the word, living in camel hair, eating grasshoppers, you know, uh, and honey, and that's the way that he lived. And he was out in the wilderness, and people were coming to him in droves. And he had a very simple message, repent, turn from your sins, the kingdom of God is at hand. Same exact words that Jesus uttered when he came on the scene, and he talked about what his mission was. And he was the wild man. He was also the cousin of Jesus, uh, born to one of Mary's cousins, and from birth, before birth, the angel spoke to his mother and said, this boy of yours, he's going to be something else. He's going to be something entirely different. He's, he's going to prepare the way for the Lord. He's going to do some amazing things. 
And so this was John the Baptist. John the Baptist had some of his own disciples, some people that they were literally making the way straight or preparing the way for Jesus to come and Jesus to speak, um, and they had interactions, and John the Baptist actually baptized Jesus in, in, in just a crazy scene in the Jordan in which Jesus goes up to him, and he's like, I, I want you to baptize me, and John's like, no, 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 I, I think you should baptize me, and Jesus makes his case, and, and he does, and the Spirit descends on him like a dove, the Father speaks from the opening of the sky and says, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased even before Jesus had done anything on his ministry. That was John the Baptist. And so right after last week, you know, chronologically, Jesus sends out the disciples two by two to go and do the works that he has been doing to heal people, to exercise demons, to speak in truth. And then right after, we, right after they're sent out, before they come back to have their debrief time and everything like that, we land here. Chapter 6, verse 14. It says, King Herod knew of it, speaking of the works of Jesus, for Jesus' name had become known. Some said John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. That is why these miraculous powers were at work in him. But others says he is Elijah. And others says he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised. For it was Herod who sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. When he heard him, he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. So even though Mark calls him King Herod, he was not a king. King could have been like lowercase k, but he was just, he was a ruler of, of kind of like a, a province. He was kind of like a governor appointed by Rome, not Jewish. And, and this is the same Herod that would kind of preside uh, along with Pilate over Jesus' crucifixion several chapters later. And so if we look at like his behaviors, he was perplexed by religiosity. Like it, it intrigued him. He was curious by it. Uh, later, when he actually meets Jesus right before the crucifixion, he's like, yeah, I would love to talk to him. He's done some crazy stuff. I'd love to, love to ask him questions. He wasn't convicted necessarily, but he was, he was curious, and he loved to speak to people like that. And he was curious about John. And John was, like I said, this wild man, lived in camel hair, ate locusts and honey, lived out in the wilderness. You know, he was a man's man kind of a dude that would probably scare most man's man, men's, whatever. And he was just that guy. And so he was very intriguing to this guy named Herod, Herod Agrippa. And so, uh, so when Herod found out about him, apparently at some point they had an interaction. And Elijah being, or Herod Antipas, I said Agrippa, sorry, Herod Antipas, uh, at some point there was an interaction occurred in which because of John's mission to call people to repentance, to turn from their sin, turn to God, at some point it came up that this Herod had done something pretty crazy. He had taken his brother's wife, and married her. His brother was still alive. His previous wife was still alive. And, and they had met. They, they became entangled. And they married. Both of them getting a divorce to marry each other. Now they were not Jewish. They weren't bound by Jewish law. But they were bound by moral law of the day. And John confronts him. And he says, what you've done, it's not right. It's sin. And as a result of that, Herodias, the new wife, she was not happy. She wanted him dead. And Herod was a little bit ticked off, but he was also a bit afraid because of the power uh, that he had with the, with the people, because the people respected him, and he was a, a good man, a holy man, a righteous man. And so even though Herodias wanted him killed, uh, Herod decided, I'm just going to put you in prison, and I'll go and I'll talk to you. We'll have conversations, because you intrigue me. And so that's where they found them. Continuing on in verse 21, 
It says, but an opportunity came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a banquet for his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee. For when Herodias' daughter came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his guests. And the king said to the girl, ask me for whatever you wish, and I will give it to you. And he vowed to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, for what should I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And she came in and immediately with haste to the king and asked, and saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry, but because of his oaths and his guests, he did not want to break his word to her. And immediately the king sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. And he went and beheaded him in prison and brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, those being of John, heard of it, they came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. And so a crazy story. In the middle of what it means to be a disciple, how we are released to be disciples, how God has trained us, equipped us, and set us out, we hear about this guy, this wild man, this prophet of God who loses his life. And what do we do with it? What do we do with that? Um, A couple of things. I think we go back to the beginning and just want to talk about what was going on. It says uh, in verse 14, King Herod knew of it, for Jesus' name had become known. Uh, in this particular time, Jews and Gentiles alike, non-Jews, they were struggling with like, who is this Jesus? They didn't know. Jews especially were, were, were just kind of, they were perplexed and they were at odds with themselves because they, they knew the prophecies fairly well. They knew the prophecies of Malachi in which he was talking about one like Elijah would come back in strength and power and authority and prepare the way. And they were like, well, maybe, maybe he's Elijah because he's done some crazy things. And Elijah was taken up. He never saw death. He was taken up into heaven. And so there was an assumption that he may come back like that. Um, and so they may have thought, like, maybe this is Elijah. Who is this Jesus? Maybe he's Elijah. The other guess was maybe he's like one of the prophets that we heard about as kids, one of the prophets of old. You know, like your Isaiahs and your, your Habakkuks and your Namans and all these guys of old that were, that were bold speakers of God's truth. Maybe he's one of those, and we haven't seen one for 500 some odd years, but maybe he's one of them. But then there were some other people that knew of the death of John the Baptist, and they were like, well, John, did, John said some pretty crazy things. He never did miracles. That actually came out of John's mouth himself, that he didn't do miracles, but Jesus would. And, but many of them assume, well, maybe, maybe this guy, he's actually like the ghost of John the Baptist. And that's why he's able to do like these crazy things, like these miracles, not just teach with authority, but exercise demons and heal people and confront like the religious nomenclature of the day and all of those things. Maybe it's John the Baptist's ghost. And so when Herod hears of all of these things, like, you know, I think there's probably some upwelling of guilt inside of him, and he goes to that conclusion of, I don't know who this guy is, but I I think it's that guy that I killed. I think it's John the Baptist. I put him to death, and, and, you know, maybe it's like that Edgar Allan Poe story of, you know, the the wife under the floor scratching and overwhelmed with guilt. I know, how can you work Edgar Allan Poe into the Bible? But we just did. And so maybe it's like that, and this one came well before Telltale Heart, but but either way, maybe it was his guilt overwhelming him, and he's like, ah, I don't know what to do, but I know I put this righteous man to death, and maybe it's him. And so at some point, either way, before he put him to death, like I said, um, John had confronted him. He had gone to him with the truth of what was going on, and he had confronted him with just the fact that what he had done, the wife that he had taken, just not right, just wasn't right. And man, it, it made him really mad, mad enough that Herodias wanted him dead immediately. How dare you question my moral decisions? How dare you question my marital rights? How dare you question these things? I just want you dead. But Herod, on the other hand, like I said, he was intrigued by him. He was, 
He was curious, and at the same time, he saw the sway and the authority that he had with the crowd, and he didn't want him to die. Scripture even says that he protected him to a degree, or he kept his new wife from killing him. And so that's where we find them. And then we have this crazy scene, like he decides it's his birthday, and he wants to invite people in and have a big party for himself, but also to honor, like, nobility. So he invites military leaders, he invites, you know, all the people in high position, and it says that his new wife's daughter comes in and dances for them. Now, there's, there's two theories on this. One, that she's a little girl, okay, and, and that she comes in and she does some twirling and, and shows the twirliness of her dress, and, and, you know, he's like, oh, you're so cute, I'll give you anything. Well, the problem is he also later, you know, gives her the head of John the Baptist on a platter. I don't think he would do that with a little girl. The more likely explanation is since the mother wasn't there, this girl comes in and she dances in a rather adult manner, you know, uh, just not G-rated. And so, like, from the get-go, we have to see that the morality, the moral fiber is jacked up. Like, it's just all askew. And he sees her along with the other men there, and maybe women weren't even there because her mother wasn't there. She has to go out to, to see her in a minute. Uh, he looks at her, and he's like, wow, I'll give you anything I got. Anything I got. He speaks in hyperbole or hyperbole, if we mispronounce, but that's the way it reads to me when I read it, hyperbole. But he speaks in hyperbole. He's like, even up to half my kingdom. I will give to you. That was a figure of speech. He couldn't do that. It wasn't his. But either way, he's like, man, I'll give you whatever you want. It says that she goes out and she talks to her mother. She was like, he said anything. What should I ask for? Herodias seizes the opportunity. She says, the head of John the Baptist, the one who confronted us about our wrongdoing, bring me his head. And she goes in and she adds to that a little bit. She says, not just do I want his head, but I want it on a silver platter and I want it now. And so he's made a vow in front of all of these high people, in front of these all super important people. And he can't go against his word. It would embarrass him. And so he sends an executioner to kill the man that he was intrigued by, to kill the man that even though he was perplexed, he enjoyed listening to, to kill the man who he kind of feared doing this to earlier and brought the head to his stepdaughter who took it to her mother and killed him. Crazy story. I mean, just like it's out there. It's, you know, it's, it's very much like something you'd watch on HBO, <laughs> that kind of stuff. And so, like, from the beginning of this series, like, uh, reading ahead, just thinking through, like, honestly, I've, I've, I've sat and I've asked God, I'm like, God, what do we do with this passage? Like, what, what do we do? Because I believe that all Scripture is breathed by God, profitable for teaching and reproof and all of those things. But I read this and sometimes I'm like, I, I just don't know. Like, I'm not a big commentary guy. Like, I don't read a ton of commentaries, but on this particular passage, like, I've read through every one I can get my hands on just to see, like, what, what do people say? Like, what, what do we do? Like, because you can read the facts, but I believe that Scripture teaches us how then we should live, too. And I'm like, well, what, what is it? And just, I feel like God's given us three things, three things in this passage to, to think through, maybe even just to reorient our brain around um, and to do. The first is this, and it goes back to the beginning I think for us, we have to address the same eternal question that Herod was wrestling with in the beginning. Who is this Jesus? Like, who is this Jesus, really? Um, because for Herod and the people of the day, they, they, they just couldn't figure it out. Even the teachers of the law that had read the law, that had read the prophecy, when Jesus came on the scene, he was completely different than their interpretations looked like. They thought military commander would be the Messiah. They thought someone that would, would take over the political rule of their people would be the Messiah. They never thought that it would be this meek lamb that would walk to the cross willingly and give up his life willingly 
and, and not put up a fight. They never imagined that through faith in this carpenter's son that they would find salvation. And so they were all confused. And maybe, maybe we've been in that same spot. Because I think the, the eternal question that we must be able to answer by grace through faith that comes through hearing is we have to answer that same eternal question, who is this Jesus? And that's the reason that Mark wrote this gospel. That was part of the huge motivation for the reason he wrote it. One of the earliest gospel written, Mark, he was answering that eternal question, who is this Jesus? Antipas went back and forth trying to figure out who it was. His guilt spoke to him. He's like, it must be the death. It must be the ghost of John the Baptist. But eventually... Herod, along with many others, would see that that was not who it was. It was the Messiah that was promised. It was the one that they had been waiting on. It was so many of those things. I think the most ironic part of, of all of this is that Herod put to death the one man at this point that knew exactly who Jesus was. I mean, of all the people, like, like Peter had not made the profession and the confession that you are the Son of God, that you are the Christ. He hadn't said that yet. No one else had proclaimed him like that. They had believed in him. They had trusted in the power that he had demonstrated. But not a single other person knew who this really was except John the Baptist. And if we look in John chapter 1, which we'll, we'll toss up on the screen, uh, in John chapter 1, we see that John the Baptist, of all people, he's the one that knew John chapter 1, verse 19, it says, And this is the testimony of John, speaking of John the Baptist, not John the disciple. When the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, Who are you? He confessed and did not deny, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked them, What then? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you a prophet? Are you the prophet? And he answered, No. So they said to him, Who are you? We need to give an answer to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? He said, I am the voice of one crying out in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as the prophet Isaiah said. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, then why are you baptizing? If you are neither the Christ, nor Elijah, nor the prophet. John answered them, I baptize with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. Even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. These things took place in Bethany across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day he saw Jesus coming towards them and he said... Five hundred years of silent prophecy. Like five hundred years of the people of God clamoring, like we want to hear from you, God. And this is what comes out of his mouth. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is whom I've said. After me comes a man who ranks before me, before he was before me. I myself did not know him for this, uh, for this purpose. I came baptizing him with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And then it says that John bore witness. It's so amazing that of all the people that Herod goes after, he kills the one man in all of Israel that at this moment he knew without a doubt that this was the one they had been waiting on. He was the one that could answer, like, who is this Jesus? He had been answering it from the beginning. Like, when he first saw him, he's like, look, look, it's the Lamb of God. The Lamb of God, the perfect sacrifice that we can't equate in our brains, that we can't possibly understand. It's him that's coming towards me. I'm not fit to untie his sandals. This is the one. Like, John knew. Do we? Like, we, we have to answer that question. Like, do we know who this Jesus is? And you say, well, it's okay if I just know God, but without Jesus. No, 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 it's not. It's not, because if that was the case, Jesus would not have had to come. He would not have had to come, live, 
blamelessly die ruthlessly and, and then rise on the third day. If it was not for Jesus, we could not know God. He had to come. And so therefore, we must be able to answer the question, who is this Jesus? John knew. John knew. I think the second thing with this passage that we need to, to be able to do or be able to see, and this one's crazy too, just like a couple of weeks ago when we saw that Jesus went to his hometown and he was sharing truth with those that he grew up with, uh, those that he may have played basketball with as a kid, probably not basketball, but just, you know, he played games with them, and they, they didn't listen because they were like, how, how do you speak these things? How do you know these things? We don't. How do you? They were confused. And we said that that passage was not like a stop sign not to go to your family and speak truth to your family, but it was kind of like a, a caution sign saying, look, this is going to be hard, but it's entirely necessary. I think in this passage we have a similar idea, and it's that we need to be prepared uh, that the world is not going to agree with God's ways. We need to be prepared that the world in general is not going to agree with God's ways. Uh, I think we have to come to this understanding and just, we have to accept it. From the time that sin entered in, it has corrupted our minds, corrupted our hearts, and God's ways and our ways, they are no longer the same. God's ways and our ways are no longer the same. Holiness is not our default. Like, that's not where we will normally go. I mean, because look, if, if we take the situation and we write it out on a whiteboard, we draw the family tree of what's going on, there's no way that we can say, hey, this woman was married to this guy, he was a Herod too, and this guy was married to another woman, and, and if they got a divorce, there would be a war, but they left both of their spouses and married each other, which was kind of incestuous, like, you know, at least by law. Like, if we wrote that down on a whiteboard, there's no way that we would look at that and say, hey, that's okay. There's no way. I mean, even the most morally bankrupt person would look at that and kind of scratch their beard and be like, I don't know. I don't know about that. But in the grand scheme of things, what sin does is it takes the, the fingerprint DNA that God's placed on us by creation, creating us in his image, the Imago Dei, and it corrupts it. It breaks it. It doesn't just hide it. It breaks it. We are no longer on the same page with God as a result of sin. His ways, not just better than ours, not just different than ours, but higher and perfect compared to ours. And so we have to understand that when we come into union with God through Jesus and only Jesus, like we have to understand the things that he's asking us to do, the way that he is asking us to live, the world may not agree with that. Now that does not make them our enemies. That does not mean that we wage war against them. It actually reaffirms this idea that, man, we and everyone else, we need Jesus. We need Jesus. Like it goes back to that first question, who is this Jesus? We must be able to answer that eternal question. And this one just solidifies it because, look, without Jesus, without the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that is a result, that is the seal of my trusting in Jesus and only Jesus, like, look, my ways and God's ways, they will never be parallel or synchronized again. Because if it's just me, in my own accord, I'm marred, I'm broken, I am more than confused, I am unable, I am unable to find the goodness of God as a result of my sin. It's only through Jesus and only through his regeneration that I can actually begin to come back and see that God's ways are the ways, whether the world agrees with them or not. And so when we encounter the world and they are at odds with God's ways, it should not surprise us, but it should affirm this idea, man, these people around me, they need Jesus just like I did just like I still do, every single day, applying the gospel to my, my life every day, 
not so that it can be salvific and save me again because I'm saved, period, by grace through faith, but so that I can remember that I need Jesus. So do they. Your kids, they need Jesus. Your neighbors, they need Jesus. Your coworkers, they need Jesus. The person that you talk to when you get gas and pay way too much right now, if you talk to anybody, or you probably just yell at the pump like the rest of us. The pump doesn't need Jesus, but the people inside, they do. God's ways, they're not our ways, but they can be. They can be. And we need Him. Holiness is not our default. The third idea that I think we need to, to walk away with, and, and this, was, this is probably like the, the universal idea from this passage, and um, it's just kind of a bitter truth, but it's also reality. Uh, discipleship, following Jesus, the way that we know God, it can be completely costly. It can very well cost us everything. Everything. If John had not been rep uh, preaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, he would have most likely still had his head. Many, many countless missionaries who love Jesus emphatically would still have their lives if they didn't believe wholeheartedly in the Christ. I mean, today, <laughs> today, in, in places that the news is not talking about, brothers and sisters who claim Jesus over their government die. All of the disciples except one, all of the disciples except one gave their life uh, for the beauty of the cross without recanting anything they believed. Early Bible translators, believe it or not, just people who were translating the Bible into speakable, readable, understandable language gave their lives because they knew that people needed to actually hear and understand the word for themselves without being spoon-fed it, burned at the stake. John Piper tells a story in a, like a book, early 2000s, called Don't Waste Your Life, and he talks about Ruby, uh, Ruby Ellison and Laura Edwards. Uh, they died in, in 2000. Uh, they were in Cameroon, West Africa. Ruby was over 80. She had been single all her life and had spent her life making Jesus known among the unreached, the poor, the sick. Laura was a widow and a doctor. She was pushing 80 and served uh, with Ruby in Cameroon. And one day while they were driving from one village to another, their brakes went out and they drove over a cliff. Died. Unwasted lives. Found lives. Lives that they knew were worth forfeiting for the name of Jesus. And Piper asked in his book, he was like, was this a tragedy? Two lives driven by one great passion, namely to be spent in unheralded service to the perishing poor for the glory of Jesus Christ, even two decades after most of their American counterparts had retired to throw away their lives in trifles. He answers, no, that's not a tragedy. That's a glory. These lives were not wasted and these lives were not lost. I think we have to understand that the moment that we say, Jesus, my life is yours, we actually need to mean it. Whatever you ask, I'll do. Wherever you send, I will go. Whatever it costs, I will spend, because my life's no longer mine. And that's not American, right? Because everything I earn that goes into my bank account is mine. Like, it has my name on it. It has my account number on it. I think we need to understand that the moment that we say yes to Jesus, we say, whatever you want whatever you want, wherever you want, however you want me to get there. And I know that's hard. I get it. I get it. 
because that just, man, it clashes with everything we dream of, everything we hope for, everything we plan for, save for. In John chapter 15, uh, verses 18 through 21, uh, we see Jesus remind us. He says, if the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world, because I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus warns us. He's like, look, you're going to see what's going to happen to me. There's a chance it could happen to you. There's a chance it could happen to you. In Mark 8, uh, which we'll, we'll get back to in a couple weeks, um, in Mark 8, 34 and 35, it says, In calling to the crowd with him and his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. I'm not saying we're going to go out and die tomorrow. But I'm saying that if the glory of the cross demands it, it's okay. And I know that's crazy. Like, I get it. I get it to even say it, to even say that, that we could die for something, something that we, we heard about in Scripture is crazy. But then I think we go back to the question of value. Like, what is it that we're actually talking about? Are we, are we talking about dying for a name written on a piece of paper? No, no, no. We're, we're talking about actually... Uh, allowing our lives to be forfeit so that maybe someone else may know God eternally. We're talking about my life not being mine for the glory of God so that others may know and so that others may get to call on Jesus as Lord the same way that we have. We're talking about the fact that through the weight of glory, there's no other way to God except through Jesus. And his plan A is, and it totally involves the words that are coming out of our mouths as a result of the life that God has given us, the gospel. The gospel is not just to be shown in our actions, but it has to be spoken with words. It is linguistically translated from one person to another through the confides of relationship so that others may know, repent of their sins, and call on Jesus as Lord. And yes, that is worth my life. That's worth my life. It's all about about value. It's entirely about value. And again, it goes back to that very first question that Antipas was trying to answer. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? It all hinges on that. There is no knowledge of God knowing me, me knowing God without Christ. There is no forgiveness of my sins that have kept me more than at arm's arm's length from God, except more like behind a brick wall from God. There's no forgiveness of sins without Jesus. There's no profession of gospel without the life, the work, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. It all goes back to that question. Who is this Jesus? Herod couldn't answer it. Maybe he he couldn't answer it that day. Maybe he could later. All we know is that even after Jesus' death, Antipas wanted to be king more than anything, and it cost him everything. We don't see that he, he came back and circled back around to this conversation and said, no, maybe I will believe. We don't see it. But we have the opportunity to not only be reminded today of who Jesus really is, and there's no hope of life without him, 
but we have an opportunity in this city, no matter where we meet, no matter what name we go by, to declare that there's one Jesus, there's one way to God, and it's through Him, and it just, we need to hear and believe. Our neighbors can hear it, our kids can hear it, our coworkers can hear it, the city can hear it, but in order for them to hear it, we have to speak it. We have to speak it. We have to share it. And sometimes we have to share it ad nauseum over and over and over and over with the expectation that God's going to do something with it. I was reminded this morning, and we'll bring those up frequently, but as I was praying this morning, I pulled out the cards that I keep in my Bible of the names that you wrote down. Those three people. We talked about this months ago. Maybe you weren't here that day, but, but on this particular day, we talked about the fact that you have people that are close to you and far from Jesus. And we just ask that you write three names down on a card. This is mine. You write three names down, and you circle the one that you feel like is the highest probability right now uh, for you to have a conversation with about Jesus. And, and here's your goal is you, you put this card or this piece of paper somewhere that you see it on a daily basis, and you just pray for God to save these people. You pray for God to, to share life with them through the gospel, maybe out of your mouth, hopefully out of your mouth, and that God would do something with it. We don't save people. It's not our job. We don't have that in us. God saves people, but faith comes through hearing, according to Romans 10, and it gets there by us speaking. And, uh, but before we ever get to do that, we, we pray for them repeatedly, as often as we can, over and over and over until God answers. Or they move away, <laughs> one or the other. And I was reading these names of, of other people. We distributed these amongst leadership, and, and I was trying to picture some of them who I don't know. But I often try to guess who wrote them down because uh, those names weren't on there either. And my prayer was simple this morning, that, that through God's Spirit, if you wrote their names down, you'd be reminded. And maybe you haven't looked at it. Maybe you threw it away. You can recreate it. You can make it again. There's nothing special about half of an index card that I bought from Office Depot. Um, but you can write their names down new and begin to pray for them again. Because that question must be answered by all people. And it would be way better if they answered it now than at the end of their time. Who is this Jesus? Who is this Jesus? Discipleship can be costly. But we have to admit, it's got to be worth it. It's got to be worth it. And until we believe that it's worth it, it won't be costly. And we probably won't say a word. We'll just live our little Christian life by ourselves in our little bubble, go home to our caves, not invite anyone in, hide the truth in our own clay pots, never share it with anybody. It's not what God intended. It was not his plan. He said, I'm coming to redeem a people for my glory, for my purpose, so that others may be for my glory, for my purpose, so that others may be for my glory, for my purpose, and so on, and so on, and so on. And this is how the kingdom grows, through the kingdom. God, we love you. Thank you this morning for your word. Even the difficult ones, uh, like today. And God, we thank you for the boldness of, of a wild man, uh, John the Baptist, who prepared the way for your son to come and preach repentance in a kingdom that we could be brought into by his own blood. Uh, today, God, I pray that we see that the weight of the gospel is far more valuable than the weight of our own lives. And we will be willing to forfeit it all for your glory.
and your hope. God, speak to those of us who are on the fence about who to speak to and when to speak. God, I pray that you'd remind us daily that, that you are our only chance at hope and you're our neighbor's only chance of hope, our children's only chance at hope, our loved one's only chance at hope. And we would be bold and we would trust in your equipping and your empowering to speak. I thank you for your glory. I thank you that you allow us to share in it. I thank you that you allow us to speak of it.